1: So I was locked in the home. I knew I couldn't continue to live that life. I was about 15, my sister was 11, and for months I had been saving up just the little bits of change that I could find around the house. I had a plan to take a Greyhound bus to Portland to find my dad. And I had this little Ziploc bag in my hand and I said, I'm gonna go get a bus ticket, I'm gonna go find dad, and I promise I'll come back for you. So I crawled out through that window it's a wonderful
2: chaos Beautiful,
0: random Messy and glorious Solo or tandem We work to find rest We fight to find peace from head and
2: the heart Like can let you and So What are we doing here? You mean listening to this show? Where the more that you learn Is the less that you know Where the wounded are heal. And the atheist
1: pray It's a wonderful chaos And oh. we like it that way
0: Today we're on way. It's with Christine Ming Ming Garner yeah. and we're going to talk to her about a fascinating story. One that as soon as I saw it, I was really excited to have her on and it's uh, being raised in a doomsday cult yeah. and coming out of it and then building a life afterwards. So we're going to talk to her and get into that story.
2: We've had quite a few cult, culty people. I mean, people that came from that environment. We have a lot of people
0: who have left churches, right? And they yeah. often, I bet you if we asked them, they would call the churches they left cults. Yeah yeah, 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 She was seven years old when you think about as a seven-year-old child just forming your understanding of the world. And then your mom and dad say, hey, we're going from at that point Portland to Idaho to join a cult. And then she's in there for the next 10 years till she's 17 years old. You think about those formative years. If I look back at that time in my life, that was just when I was starting to form my identity, just when I'm starting to feeling like a sense of belonging, just when I'm starting to feel attraction to a females. And and that's uh and she's in that environment. So you got to think to yourself, well, how does that affect you going forward? We're going to find out. Yeah. So I say we bring bring on Christine Ming-Ming Garner. Hello.
1: Hi, how's it going?
0: It's going very well. You know, there's two things. First, I think it's there's a time in my life when I realized I'm going to discuss all my past and the dirty stuff even more so because I lived in shame and not wanting people to see that for good portions of my life. So the question to you is like, When was the point that you were like, you know, there's a lot of people in my life that maybe don't know this part of my history. When did you say it's time to talk about it now? When did that happen?
1: Great question. So it happened uh, when the pandemic hit. And the reason why is, you know, you're getting, we were getting served fear on a silver platter and I... I ate that up with a spoon. I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't go anywhere. I can't open the door when people knock. I'm so freaking afraid for my clients, for my employees, for my kids, for myself, for my husband. I'm like, we can't go anywhere. We have to stay home.
0: And,
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> and um, I had started my company called envision your purpose where I was doing workshops that, um, helped people to identify their purpose, create goals that align with their purpose, Mm -hmm. and then create an execution plan to live their purpose. Uh. And, um, I did that because as a child, they taught me in the cult that I would die at a young age, that I would never have the opportunity to graduate from high school or college or have a career or a family. So never, ever plan for those things. But, when I got out of the cult, I knew that, hey, you know what? There is a good chance I could die today. I could die tomorrow. But I'm going to live my very best life today. And so I chose to rewrite my story. And I've lived such an incredible life that I was like, I'm going to teach people how to overcome their fear.
0: Yeah. And you'd say that probably the cult fed off of your fear. So it controlled through fear.
1: Oh, t- Completely, very manipulative, extremely manipulative, and so um, I started that work, like these workshops, and um, just so ecstatic about it. And but I also owned another company; it's a commercial security company. And, you know, where we provide like fire alarm systems and access Mm -hmm. control and all that jazz. Mm -hmm. And um, when the pandemic hit, I thought I, I got to put my passion aside. You know, this new budding business, this something I'm so passionate about it, but I got to stay with what's safe. Mm. You know, and I can't do it on in-person workshops anymore like I was hoping to do. And I got to cancel all that. And we're just going to focus on uh, just on the commercial security company. And. As I was going through that fear and and feeling so held back, I was like, man, this doesn't feel good. My, my heart was like, this, this doesn't feel good. And my husband actually brought something up. He goes, Christine, this is not your first rodeo. You're not a stranger to living in social isolation. You're not wow. a stranger to living in fear. And it just, I was like, mind blown. I was like, oh my gosh, you're right. And it made me realize that I can do this. I can get out of this fear. I can live a life that I, I love even though fear surrounds me, and uh, um, so I just had to really tap into, hey, what was it that helped me at the age of seventeen escape this life of this, fear? Is, by the way,
0: this is fascinating because as you speak, it just dawns on me that actually that that you said the experience today was not all that dissimilar from what you had when you were a child. Mm -hmm. And I just realized I hadn't really thought about it is that in this last year, really everyone has had fear, which is said, Hey, you need to be scared. And because of that fear, you need to self isolate. And, 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 and I just realized that that is also of course the behavior of a cult.
1: (laughs) It is, it is. And and I, I want to say that, If people are living in fear, I completely understand this pandemic is something I think you should be very cautious of. Yeah. But I don't think that it should hold you back from living a life that you love.
2: Yeah. Christine, you said something earlier. They said that you will never have any future. You're going to die at a young age. Like, uh, my, my mind is a bit twisted when you said that. Like, what's the context?
1: Yeah. So, so let me just back up a little bit. When my mom, um, I was seven years old. She came home from work one day. She had listened to this cassette tape that her friends were listening to at lunchtime. And there was a man that proclaimed that he was the prophet of God saying that he received revelation that the world was coming to an end very soon. And people living on, on, um, the west coast of the United States, they were going to die first. From <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love this speci- specificity, the people on the west coast, just south of San Francisco and north of Los Angeles, those people are gonna go first.
1: Yes, oh. that was
2: funny. That was very like, funny. Like, didn't, didn't, and you guys didn't find that funny. No, of course not. Um. No,
1: well, my dad found it absolutely ridiculous. But my mom was so dead set on believing it. And she came home and she said, hey, if you love me and the kids, you're going to help me sell this house and up and follow the prophet." And he didn't believe it. Let's slow down
0: a second. I just want to feel this, like the emotional manipulation going on, right? Like either this or I'm leaving you.
1: Yeah, it was very... mm -hmm. Mm. Very trying for our family, and do you um, remember because, this time? Or I this- do. I actually remember hearing these conversations because we had just barely bought the house that my mom considered to be her dream home. I mean, my parents are refugees from the Vietnam War, so they literally came with nothing. Okay, Sorry. they came with nothing, and then they worked there. They worked to the bone, and every Sunday after church, we would drive around looking for homes, and. My mom finally and my dad were finally able financially to buy their dream home after decades of saving. Yeah, my mom was willing to just give it all up. And we had so much family in Portland. And that's where our roots were. It was devastating. And I definitely remember it.
2: (laughs) Wow. So you're seven years old. uh, And you walked into this... um I don't know what it is. They opened it like,
0: how, yeah, how, describe, tell, how describe, how describe yeah. that like the first night, like how does it work? No,
2: actually rewind. Yeah. Describe as I don't know if you guys drove or the, or you traveled, but, but describe entering this, the garden or the entrance. Like, yeah. How like,
0: does like I want to close my eyes. If I'm, a, if you're reading <laughs> me a child, child book, what is that experience like?
1: Well, I just remember my parents were in the kitchen and which is totally normal. They are always cooking. And, um, but I just remember my dad raising his voice. And so I'm like walking down the stairs and I'm just kind of listening from the stairs. And my mom is saying, I'm willing to give up everything to save our family. And my dad said, no, you don't, who is this man? You've never even seen this man. You heard this man's voice on a cassette tape. Who's to say he's even real and she's like, he's real. My friends have seen him. He's coming to town. He can stop, you know, he, he's going to be like prophesying and we can we can go and see him. And my dad's like, this is crazy. And it was around the same time that Waco, Texas was exposed. And he's like, this is Waco, Texas shiz, you know. And so there was lots of contention in the home. My dad brought in a family from California. And. Um, you know, was like, hey, you need to talk some sense into her. And,
0: and then your mom is telling them, good, go with us because California is going first.
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what she was trying to do. She, and she's a very persuasive woman. She really wow. is. And so, yeah, it was very, very tough.
2: So, Pups said yes to something that he didn't have a full yes.
1: Well, what ended up happening is my mom said, I'm going to sell the house with or without you. Mm and I'm going to take the kids. And so uh, over a few weeks time, they got it all ready. And and my dad just really, he felt like he had no choice because my mom was dead set on leaving with or without him. So they put the house on the market. They put, they priced it at a price, that it, it just sold in a day. And um, my, they, they drove an Astro van. I don't remember if you guys, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember Astro vans, but they're like these really. We thought it was a really posh van. Anyways, he was like, "Well, um, let's just sell the Astro van, and um, I'll go get you a different van." And he bought this the clunkiest, nastiest, old, disgusting van, rusted to the bone. And he, the night before, he just threw in a couple mattresses, and he's like, "Here." You, you can go. And his hope was that the, the van would break down halfway there and that she would come home. But that's not what happened. <laughs> it made it all the way there. We caravans with all of the families that were following the prophet. And we actually didn't know where we were moving to. Wow. Yeah. It was like. And, one. and,
0: your, and, and your dad stayed behind.
1: He ended up because here's the thing. My mom was a terrible driver. And <laughs> yeah, she's a really terrible driver. He was really afraid for her. And he also didn't want them to take her away and not know where we were. Yeah. So like that morning he was like, I'm going to jump in the van. I'm going to drive you, you know? So he ended up coming with us. And once he got there, he, he was like, this is so false. This is so crazy. This is like Waco, Texas. I'm going to shoot you all. This is what he said to the prophet and his family, and 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 he said it out of anger because you know it was ruining our family. Yeah. And uh, so at that point, he was exiled. He they told my mom if since he's not on board, since he doesn't believe, he's not a believer or follower of God. He has to he has to go. And so my mom said, "You have to go. Go back home." <sighs>
0: Wow. Did they ever give you specific dates of oh. like, yeah. And so, did you? So, just to help me understand this, are they giving you specific dates and then you're looking at your watch like, oh my, in oh yeah. two oh days yeah. I'm dead? So, you're so, thinking over and over again, in two days I'm dead, in two days I'm dead. Is that what's going on all the time?
1: So, we moved um, to. Pocatello, Idaho, which was about uh, like a twelve-hour drive, approximately, and um, we we reached that area, and they told us that the end of the world was coming. It was August of nineteen ninety-three, and I was gonna
0: say, I was gonna say, what was the hit album at that time? You know,
1: yeah. <laughs> I wasn't listening to it. Yeah. I wasn't listening to the cult crap. Anyhow, but I was seven and, and my birthday's in August. And I was like, oh no, like, am I not going to have another birthday? Like, this freaking sucks, you know? And I was thinking that the whole time. And then the whole month of August, I was just like, am I going to die today? Am I going to die today? Am I going to die today? And then September 1st comes and everybody's looking at the prophet like, dude, Didn't you say we were going to die last month? Isn't that why we did everything you asked us to do? Isn't that why we sold all of our businesses, all of our homes, you know, any of our nice possessions, we, we sold everything to follow you. Like what's happened, what's happening. And then the prophet said, well, because you have listened to me so diligently that God is going to give us extra time. So keep following me keep doing everything i ask you to do and you can potentially be saved.
2: Ah.
0: Incredible.
2: I'm uh, I'm a little bit flabbergasted. Yeah. If you only do and, what i say. And how old are you at this time?
1: Well, i had turned 8 by then. <laughs> September of 1993 i had turned 8.
2: So And and this is a little bit the like what did, what did a day look like for you there as an eight as an eight year old as a yeah. nine year old like
1: so it was like first thing in the morning you wake up there's like no breakfast they want you to go straight to um the prophet's house and you're like on your hands and knees and you're praying like literally for hours and then um they give you some water i just remember how hot it was and they never used their ac cuz they never wanted to spend any money you know, um, because all the money went towards like food storage in the event that we were to survive, like we would need food storage. So, um, so I just remember like sitting there and listening to the prophet preach and I'd be so hungry and just drinking water and like praying that I could have some ice. And, um, and this was like an all day occurrence. And then, and then they'd let you break go home, eat a little bit, then come back. And this was an all day, all day event. It's like all you can do is, is, is listen to the prophet. And then there would be like ceremonial things at the cemeteries. They, they believed that um, they could baptize everybody at the cemeteries by sprinkling holy water on them. So we would go to the cemeteries and, and baptize all of these people.
2: Mm. And so, uh, like I'm capturing and catching all these words, money. Where, did, where does this money come from? Like did, for example, um, your family donate all the money to the prophet?
1: <sighs> so this is crazy. So, so I don't know how much money was donated because I was so young, but I do know that there was a time when my mom actually flew back to Portland and she took out a huge sum of money from the sale of the home. And they put it into like, they just all these families pulled in their, their funds, their money to buying a huge plot of land in a foresty area where they built like these underground bunkers filled it with food storage and like just life preserving material and they were prepared to to run to the hills and hide in the event um that doomsday was coming and, and the government was gonna take over and it was just crazy.
0: Could so, you imagine yeah, living right. in that incessant fear on that level? I mean, we already live it, like you mentioned earlier in the show, we live in that fear right now because of COVID. But yeah. at that time, at seven, eight, nine years old, every day you're being told the world's going to come to an end. We have maybe another day to live and we've got to get extra food so we might be able to survive a little bit longer.
1: Exactly. If you're worthy, if you do everything the prophet tells you to do to mm-hmm. a tea, And if you're completely pure, then you might be saved.
0: Wow. I'm curious when you, you know, uh, when we asked a question earlier, you answered it differently than I had in my mind. So I want to go back to it again. When when you drive into this cult, can you kind of paint a picture for me what it looks like, where you're sleeping, how many houses there are, how many people there? Like, what is the what, what, what if I was to imagine it? What does that what does it look like?
1: Well, when we first moved, I just remember falling asleep as we were driving because we drove through the night. Mm. And when I woke up in the morning, because I'm I'm from Portland, Oregon, and I know that you guys are from the Netherlands. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Portland, Oregon is extremely lush, very, very green, lots of waterfalls, lots of bodies of water. It's just gorgeous. And I woke up in the morning and I'm seeing like sagebrush and like yellow mountains. Yeah. And I'm thinking they call this the promised land. You know, I was like, what yeah. the heck? And um and then the prophet actually lived in uh like a like a twin home. And there was a lot of apartments right near near him and so we all lived in apartments very oh. close to him.
0: Oh, so it wasn't like I kind of had this vision of like a massive area with small houses all bundled together. And like almost like that typical, like a Waco, Texas sort like of scenario. A
1: yeah, well, like a compound. What ended up happening years later is they bought a compound. Okay. So then I lived on the compound.
0: Wow. Are you able to leave the compound to meet people that aren't in the cult, or are you like forbidden ever to leave? Like, how often and under what conditions could you even leave?
1: So when I was younger, I actually went to to elementary school, but they had always taught me that um, never talk to anybody about you what you believe. Don't even don't even say you're even Christian. Don't even say you believe in God. Just like just like try to sidestep the whole conversation, and never ever tell them why you why you came here. And so, but then that must have
0: been a heavy thing to hold as a kid. If someone tells you not to talk about something like that, that couldn't have felt good.
1: Well, they didn't want us making friends. So I had friends within the cult, but then, you know, the cult members would be dropping like flies over time because they're like, what the heck? This is crazy. Like you told us that we were going to die. And now we're like sitting here, like sitting ducks and nothing's happening. And so pretty soon I was like left with no friends because they were moving away. And then I, I was making friends in school and I, I've, I've always been um, a pretty optimistic person, even though I was just ridden by fear. But I think it's because also I really loved being around other people who didn't live with that fear, that they were just normal. <laughs> they would talk about normal stuff. And so when they realized that I was a threat to their community, they actually locked me and my sister in the home. So every day after my mom would leave for work, they would deadbolt the door from the outside. So that was a really, really dark time. And, and,
0: And how long did you live that
1: way? For, so the, the first year they took me out of school, they actually didn't lock me in. The second year is when they locked me in because the first year, um, They just didn't think that I would ever try to escape, Uh Um, but I would, like, lunchtime, I would, like, take the back roads, and I'd walk to the school just so that I could see my friends, Uh and one time, a friend of mine actually wrote me a letter, and it ended up in my mailbox, Mm -hmm. and I got into massive trouble over that. Wow. Like, how come you're communicating with the outside world? We've taught you not to do that, and then that's when they locked me in.
0: Wow, this is heavy duty stuff, Chris. It is.
1: Well, it's super heavy, and I'm actually how really you? that you guys how, would how, like that you guys would dig, dive this deep. Most how how
0: don't. how is it for you to like be with us, kind of sharing it? Because we have two sides to our show. <laughs> There's the we talk, we talk, we talk, and then both Bambos and I kind of feel into what's going on as you explain. And and like, we're like, God, like there's an incapacitation that comes inside of me that uh, I, I obviously you would have had to go through, which is why you're doing the work you're now doing. But like, how is it for you now with us even (laughs) engaging you here?
1: You know, I've done so many like interviews and podcasts and at the beginning, it was really devastating for me to talk about. Mm. Like I couldn't talk about it without, is like breaking down in tears. Yeah. And that's when I knew that I've never really gone through that healing process. Mm. So I've really been working on trying to heal myself so that I can really be um, an instrument <laughs> to helping other people heal. But truly, it, it, it's it still really hurts, especially because I, I recently um, had a really difficult experience. So my cousin recently committed suicide just a couple weeks ago and I went to his funeral and he was laid to rest um, next to my my dad and my brother
0: mm.
1: and you know during the funeral we had an opportunity to, to go up and and there was an open mic and we got to talk about stories that we remembered of him mm. and as everybody was going up, I was like, Thinking, my gosh, I wish I was here. I wish I had grown up with him to actually see him dance and sing and be so, so charismatic. I wish I had a story to tell, Uh, you know, because I was whisked away at such a young age. And then when I was visiting the grave of my dad and my brother, because my brother died when I was the age of 17, and that hurt me to my core because my brother had to leave from the cult when I was nine. So from the age of nine to 17, I didn't get to spend time with him. so when I saw him getting buried, I was devastated to lose all of those years. Mm. With him. And then when my dad was buried four years ago from the drug addiction and the withdrawals he was going through, that was directly from, you know, him losing his family. Yeah. And so as I was visiting their graves, I just had a whole wave of emotions that I haven't had. I've never allowed myself to be angry. Never. I've always felt like I need to move forward in my life. I need to take like the path path of like least resistance where I just overcome this really fast and I'm going to make progress in my life. And what I've recognized now is that I robbed myself of going through the, the full process of, of grieving because I have lost a lot yeah. and allowing myself to really feel the anger so that I can truly heal. So I'm, I'm in a healing process right now. That's difficult. So it is difficult to talk about because I long for the lost time that I have with people all, I'll never see on earth again, so
0: you know the when she spoke it reminded me a little bit of the the last letter to her what you know my my mom was killed by a drunk driver when oh, i was 19, when I was oh. nineteen and um and i uh I shut down emotionally for the next thirty some odd years it was just uh like wow like, like it was uh it was 19 and she was, you know, my dad was really abusive. So I needed her. And when she died, life felt like it was over for me. And as you speak, you know, I realized that, you know, I wrote a book about the experience, but in the book, what I was really writing to was the process of allowing myself to feel the pain that I had not allowed myself to feel all the years after her death. And I, um, and I think it's interesting because I hear when you speak that like it's almost like we need space from the pain so that we can kind of come back to it and see how much can we bring it back and allow ourselves to heal. And uh, and I noticed when I, the book, I did a tour and I did, uh, in a very short time of three months, I did 60 sessions with groups where I said, write a letter to a loved one as if they're going to die tomorrow and feel the emotions that come up and then write with that emotion. So stay with the the feeling that you might this might be the last letter they receive, and
1: That's powerful. And
0: yeah, it was powerful, but it also took a toll on me because each time I told the story, I cried. And, yeah, um, and 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 it, uh, not unlike you, I said, "I will not move away from these emotions again." So so regardless of where it was, if I felt it, I said, "I'm going to feel it now, and I'm not going to put it down." And it was it was weird to you know i was even on a like a major t- morning show in uh, in san francisco and then the guy asked me a really uh, a really hard question to answer and i just started to cry you know on the uh, on the tv and i and i was interesting because it was one of these moments when i'm like i can i could put on a strong face and try to answer this question or i can actually allow my feelings which i've been suppressing all these years to be seen and there was a yeah. real, like, yeah. a freedom in finally letting my emotions be seen. Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. I've, you know, in the past, like, when my brother died, I uh, flew to his funeral and um, I came home early. I was supposed to be in Portland for a week. I came home after just a few days because I was like, I can't be around all these grieving people. Like, I need to move forward in my life. mm And I need to just expedite this grief and just cut it off and go, you know? And I'm realizing how detrimental that's been to me. Mm. And I really, I just need to allow myself this time.
0: Yeah. Well, I'd love to see it not as detrimental because there's a little bit more love in there. I'd love to at least suggest is that that's the best you could do at that moment to take care of yourself. Because I've noticed in my life, there's times when I needed to separate from things because that was the best I could do then. So yeah. it's always easy to look back at life and judge yourself in the perspective of where you are now. That's what, I, uh, what I've seen.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm so sorry to hear about your mother and that terrible yeah. situation with your abusive father. That's yeah. so sad. Yeah. It was, I know exactly what you're talking about, too, when yeah. you say, you know, like when you're telling the story, you're, you're essentially reliving it. Yeah. You know? Well, I, 30
0: years, I didn't. Like 30 years, I didn't relive it. I told it like it was an abstract thing. So mm. it's, only, it's only more recently I've, I've allowed myself to
1: feel it. <coughs> yeah. Excuse me. That's one of the reasons why I never talked about it. Excuse me. When, I, um, when the pandemic hit, it was like probably about a month afterwards is when I finally shook that fear off and say, I got to move forward. And when I started telling my story, I had one particular friend who called me and was like, who are you? You know, like, you know, we met right, like in college, like Mm -hmm. supposedly right after you left the cult. Mm -hmm. And how come you never told me? Or, or, Or what's your motive behind doing this? And like, how could you come from a cult? You're like, you're like so positive and you're, you're like, you know, you're full of life and all of these things. And and I didn't talk about these things because it was hard. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's depressing. It's hard. And, and I didn't see, I, I couldn't really see exactly like, okay, I really have rewrote my story. You mm-hmm. know, like my life is in an incredible place. I really can help people. Yeah. you know, from the experiences that I've had. And so now I'm just, I'm using it, using my experiences as a way to guide other people.
2: Yeah. I, I, need, I need to uh, just say that I noticed I'm shutting down. Uh, like feeling your journey is so painful in my body that I, I've, I've, I see I'm separating myself from both of you. And I caught it, I'm like, oh, come mm-hmm. back. And I find it quite remarkable that you're here with us right now. And, I'm, mm-hmm. and I um, I feel a lot of care. Thank you. For the seven year old and also celebrating where you are right now. Yeah. The woman that with the kind of green walls behind her and the fancy cushions. Yeah. Not very <laughs> cultic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah.
2: I want to, by the way,
0: celebrate this moment because we've discussed some of this in the past when Bambos and I are working together and, and in the past when really hard subjects have come on the there's we, we name it, we've, we've given a label of trauma because there's a, a, it's not, you know, that we used to say shut down, but then all of a sudden we realized when we were using that word, it was pointing to this, the symptom, but not the essence of what really was going on, which was that there is a, an inability to allow the pain, of a story to come in. And uh and and I think part of our journey on the show is mm. how do we create space in ourselves to let your story come in and then also navigate it and and like create space for you. <laughs> and uh and I could see it for many, many many shows early on, uh there would be Bambos would be shutting down at, at having a trauma. And, and we would He'd talk about like, it afterwards. Hello. I'd be like, I'd be like, who, I'd be like, who are you? Where, where's the human? What's going on? You know, it got to a point when one day I was like, Bambos, if you, if this happens, we can't continue. That's how, cause, cause it was, it was so, it's a talk, it's a talk show, Bambos. It's a talk show, you know? And, uh, yeah. And it, it so this, uh, this thing that you just being present with it was just really beautiful. I just want to share some gratitude for you fully being present with that. And
1: thank you for being willing to dive deep because the truth is, I mean, I've been on dozens of interviews and It's so hard for people to hear that they typically are like, okay, well, let's skip to the happy part.
2: (laughs) Tell us about your life right now. Um,
1: (laughs) I'm grateful for whatever. You know, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to talk about whatever it is. And um I'm just I'm just hoping that I can help somebody. So
0: Yeah. What I what I'm hearing in your story is like two kind of main things that that there is a degree to which you're you're in a process of healing. But there's a degree to which that process of healing isn't stopping you from just doing things which are helping other people. So it's your, you know, we often laugh on this show is that we often the, the second book that I wrote, which Bambus is going to raise up because he always does this for me, is the okay. wounded, the, the wounded healer. And, 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 and the, the, of course, the idea, which is not new, is that we take the wounds and we use those in order to serve ourselves primarily. So you're, so you're a wounded healer And others. And, and I hear that narrative in your story. There's
1: I've got to get that book. I'm an avid yeah. reader. So thank you for introducing yeah. me to that book. But the, the, yeah,
2: the, the audio book is amazing because he reads it. Yeah. Oh, and, really? And, 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 I'm a and fan he, of audio you, you can hear the emotion as he reads.
1: Oh, yeah. I love that! Thank you for your contribution yeah. to the world, Andy.
2: Well, I mean, it,
0: the, when I what I would say, for, you know, mm-hmm. Bambos hates when I deflect these things, but yes, thank you. I'm going to recognize. Just, yeah, good. It. Thank <laughs> you. Yes. I learned from
1: a friend long ago that she said when somebody gives you a compliment, you say. <sighs> Thank you. Yes. Thank you. (laughs) I know you don't have the hair to do it, but you can pretend. We've talked about
2: this many times on the show. Exactly. Go for it, Baba. Go, go, go. We've talked about this specific part of Andy where he can't receive after the show. And I told him, Andy, if you can't receive it, we can't do the show anymore.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, please continue the show. That is for sure. Uh, But I actually want to touch upon that actually is, um, what day is it today? Is it Thursday? Friday. Today's Friday. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. This last week has been such a whirlwind of emotions for me. Um mm-hmm. very abnormal. A, a week ago actually was the day that my my cousin was buried. And I was visiting by the way, my is this food. cousin,
0: is this name T-Bone? Is that right? Is that Yes.
1: The, yes, his yes. name is T-Bone.
0: Yes. Yeah. I saw I saw your post on the thing and it sounded very beautiful. And the yeah. fact that his name was T-Bone blew my mind. So that was
1: great. <laughs> yeah, he's gone gone by T Bone, and I actually wish I knew why that's his nickname, but he just had a larger than life personality and he's mm-hmm. just so full of life. And and but this last week has been really difficult for me. And I have wondered do I share this with my friends and my family? Do I share do I share the fact that I'm in pain, that I'm grieving, that I'm angry? Do I share this? Because is that, is that coach worthy? You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. is that, is that something, are these feelings that I should be feeling or do I pretend like I have in the past that I'm just okay? And i realized that the people who've been the most influential to me in my life they are authentic they're vulnerable Mm -hmm. and they show me that being not being okay is okay Mm -hmm. you know for the moment for the season and I I wouldn't be honest and vulnerable and authentic if I didn't share this hardship that I'm going through because I do know though that this is just a season of life.
0: It would be beautiful because we've gone there now. Um, just to share, what did T-Bone meet, mean to you?
1: You know, he was um, one of my, my, my oldest brother is nine years older than me, and he was one of my Brother's best friends, and uh, a fun story uh, which I wish I had stood up to share because I did have one story to share with him. I just remember when I was a little girl, after church, uh, we'd all go to the same church. We'd all come home uh, to grandma's house, and uh, the, the the dads would sit around gamble at the table, and the moms would be cooking, and the kids would be running around the the yard and stuff. And I just remember him coming up to me and being like, "Hey, Hugh," which. My Vietnamese name is Hugh. He'd be like bite me right here. Okay, and I'd be like Okay, and I'm so excited to <laughs> bite.
0: bite. I've do never it. done this before. Yeah, yeah, bite.
1: Yeah, no, do it. But- I'm not doing it. I'm not doing I'm not I'm not let-
0: I'm not letting his fingers go in my mouth. I don't care what we're doing here. That ain't happening on this show. <laughs> it's hilarious.
1: So awesome. So then so basically you 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 try to bite it and 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 he grabbed he grabbed my face.
2: Yeah. So before I could bite.
1: even
2: get there. <laughs> and then he'd, like, he'd go like this oh. to me,
1: like, gotcha. And then I would laugh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm doing this to Ronnie when I'm done with the show. This is the, this is done, done
2: that, deal. That's his wife.
1: <laughs> oh, cute. Yeah. I'd be like, honey, just bite me right here.
2: Yeah.
1: And and he would do that over and over. And I'd always think this time I'm going to get him, you know? Uh. And he was just fun. And he. <sighs> He would, on good days, he would hug people and kiss them, whether you're a man or a woman. Like he just loved you. And then on days when he was particularly happy, he'd lick you on the cheek. <laughs> like people would be like, "Oh no, not again!" You know. And he was just so fun. He didn't care what people thought. Uh, you know. And so, thank mm. you for the opportunity for me to share that because I was too much of a chicken. And also felt so out of place in a certain way because I've been so disconnected from my family in Portland for so long mm. that it was like, is this even like a a valid story? Is this a good story to tell? Mm. You know, like I hardly, truly, I hardly knew him because I was so young when I left and the mm. times when I've come back, you know, he's, I've seen him, but I've never truly interacted with him. And mm. and that's truly what brought me a lot of grief is knowing I could have known him better.
2: Ming-Ming, yeah. just to rewind a bit, when you shared yeah. that you had a moment where you wanted to get on the stage and pick up the mic, oh, yes. and you told yourself, what do I have to share? I I, I haven't been part of his life. Mm. And But I felt your yearning to, to just be that. And what I'm saying is, how about if you had just shared that?
1: I wish I had, that's the thing. Isn't that so sad? I feel like, um, like what you were talking about, Andy, when you said, Hey, write a letter to a loved one as if they're going to die tomorrow. There's so much in within us that we don't express Mm. because we're afraid of rejection you know, or we're afraid of looking stupid or we're afraid of saying the wrong things or whatever it is that we're afraid of. It's, I was afraid, you know, I was afraid of people looking at me like, dude, how do you even know him? You were whisked away when you were seven years old, you know, and um, I, I regret that. I regret that I didn't share that. Um, and so it's a lesson learned. It's a lesson learned that for me, when I'm feeling something like that prompting, that I share it, that I allow myself to be vulnerable, that I allow myself the risk of rejection because the love that we share is always going to be more powerful than the potential outcome of rejection.
2: So, so do your, do your family right now, like people that are connected to you, even if they're like long distance family, do they know, how you're feeling no
1: actually no i mean i discussed it with my one brother as we were walking away from the graves because i was feeling the anger so heavily that i just felt like i had to purge it Mm -hmm. and as we're walking back to like the the church from the cemetery which is right across the street i was just so heavy with grieving. And I felt like I couldn't, I didn't want to see everybody else at the moment, you know? And I was just like, I can't believe that mom took us away, Mm. you know? And my brother, the one that I shared that with actually only stayed for a couple of months because he's like, this is, this is BS, you know, like I'm going back home. And he literally had a friend drive him back home.
2: Wow. Your father.
1: But yeah, my brother went back to my dad's house in in Portland.
0: The words I keep hearing in my head over and over again is stolen, stolen, stolen. That like time, energy, periods of your life, people, the emotion is that that was stolen from you.
1: Yeah, you know, and that's so interesting too that you it like really validates how I was feeling. Yesterday I was just journaling and this is a process that I've been doing. Um, a lot especially when I'm trying to heal is I just want to put my my thoughts on paper and allow myself to feel that and I actually wrote the word stolen like the time that was stolen from me mm. but it didn't even feel like it did it justice No. I reread it and I was like no I was robbed
0: mm.
1: I was literally robbed and I'm such a huge advocate for not putting myself in a victim position, you know, like, cause I believe that when we put ourselves in that victim position, we don't, we don't allow ourselves the power to move forward, but I'm also recognizing too, that it's okay to see the truth
2: yeah, thank in you. the
1: situation to feel it. And I know I'm going to move forward. Yeah. But I do have to allow myself to feel this.
2: Yep. I, I didn't actually, when you spoke it, I didn't feel you as a victim. It felt that you were allowing yourself to feel the yeah the pain. You're allowing
0: yourself to accept that this was the reality.
2: No, no, no nonsense. I think me and Andy just love the bits out of you right now. Yep. <laughs> I can speak for Andy because I feel normally we are very aligned. Yeah. Um, is is yeah. it okay if we move a little bit forward?
1: I would love that. Thank you. I
0: have some comments from Bolalong that's been commenting, so it would be nice to bring some of his on now. I want to quickly just
2: okay. Do let's do Burlang. Burlang has a similar journey.
0: Bolalong is our South African friend who's with us every single day. Yeah, and he never ceases to amaze me. Yesterday, we find out that he got divorced in the second marriage, and oh. now he's telling us he was born into Jehovah Witness family.
2: They believe the world is going to be destroyed soon and replaced by God's new system. Most never had an opportunity to go to university because education is used for serving Jehovah. Literacy and calculations are enough. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Bolang. what what has
0: not happened to you?
2: We have a show.
0: Yeah, I think we've got another show. And, And he also says to you, he says, Christine, I'm sorry to hear that you missed in the past. I told myself that whatever happened to me in the past had to happen, and it shaped me to who I am today.
2: Yeah, we love you, Bolalong. We love you, Bolalong.
1: My love and heart goes out to you, Bolalong.
2: He's he's one of Andy always calls him a third wheel. He's on the, the show. third person on the couch for us, and and, yeah. and he will even like put us in a group message, like and yeah. say, "Hey, you have this amount of followers. It's going really well." <laughs> yeah, we had a
0: fabulous week this week. We we I don't know how many, but we had. Thousands and thousands of views and comments. And, and so he knows better than we do how well things are going. <laughs> and he sent us a message today. said, Andy, Bambos, look at how it is. You know, it's really sweet.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll be your next cheerleader. I really yeah. admire what you're doing and the, the deep dive that you actually go into. Not being afraid of the hard stuff. I appreciate that.
2: Yeah. So, Ming Ming, you're 17. How mm-hmm. does a 17-year-old woman... W- w- like, source within herself to get out of there? Like, what's the internal dialogue ex- mm-hmm. or conversations that you have to have mm-hmm. with yourself and maybe possibly with your family that's mm-hmm. there?
1: Yeah. So, let me just, um, that's such a great question. I'm going to tell you all about that. Um, just let me give you a little bit of background. So, I was locked in the home. I knew I couldn't continue to live that life. And I had a little sister who's four years younger than me. So I was about fifteen, my sister was eleven, and for months I had been saving up just the little bits of change that I could find around the house. And I literally stole money out of my mom's purse, just a dollar here and there, so she wouldn't notice. And I had a plan to um to take a greyhound bus to to Portland to find my dad because I hadn't spoken to him in so many years and we didn't have a phone number. We didn't even have a phone. I mean, the cult did not allow us to have a phone. So mm-hmm. my plan was to save up this money. I needed $54. I was about five, $6 short, but there was this one day when they punished us so difficultly and so hard that I was like, I need to get us out. I need to get us out. I don't have enough money for my sister to go, but I have to go. And I just remember looking at my sister and telling her my plan because I had been planning this out for months. But she had no idea. I didn't want her to worry about it because there's really nothing she could do. And I had this little Ziploc bag in my hand and I said, I'm going to go get a bus ticket. I'm going to go find dad. And I promise I'll come back for you. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was to crawl out that kitchen window. Every other window in the house was barred up with, um, like, plywood because they didn't want us escaping. And also they said that at the end of days, like evil spirits could enter into your home through windows. And so they like barred up all our windows. And, but that was the only one that was open because it was the window that was facing the prophet's house. So they said, you know, if in the event that a fire happens or whatever, cause we, we, we would cry, like we can't be locked up in the house. What if a fire happens? And then they're like, just call out for the prophet through the window, you know? So I, I, Crawled out through that window. And on the way to the bus station, I stopped at a a policeman's house because I didn't want my sister to be left alone there without anybody knowing she was there. And so I, I told the police my plan and I said, I need you to go and get my sister until I can come back and get her. But he said, I can't let you go. This is so dangerous. You don't even know where you're going. You know, like you don't even know if you're going to find your dad. You're way too young. I can't let you go. And he said, go back and crawl back into the window as if you and I have never spoke. I will send for help for you tomorrow. And, <sighs> yeah, this is crazy. Do we have only six minutes left? Because I want to no, make
0: No, we go over. the yeah, Continue. Okay.
1: So I'm, I'm going to go through the fast version of this story. But, no, um, go
0: through the slow version of the story. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay. Well, then, then I, I crawl back into the window, and my sister's literally, she's curled up in a ball on the ground, and she looked at me, and she said, I thought I'd never see you again. And at that moment, I was like, I have to get us out. You know, I've got to get us out. The next day, the police show up. Child Protective Services shows up. My junior high principal shows up outside of the house. But we have German Shepherds that are uh, chained to the porch so nobody could ever come close. And the dogs were going crazy. And the cult leaders and my mom go out to talk to the police. And, you know, they're so anti-government, of you know, course. that they're like, oh, my gosh, like, who's here? Why are they here? And they make sure that we stay in the house. And I'm telling my sister, they're going to, they're going to get us out. We need to start packing our bags. Then after like an hour of conversation, my mom comes back in as if nothing had happened.
0: But no one from family services had a discussion with you.
1: No, they never saw us. They never saw us, which is so crazy because I'm like.
0: so irresponsible. Like uh, it just is, it's beyond, it's beyond comprehension that you, after reporting there's abuse and I need to leave, and then them coming and not actually even interviewing you to see what it was, it just it was it's-
1: crazy. And, and you know, that also goes to show how manipulative this cult was. I mean, they all came out to talk to them and convince them that we were fine, that they were taking care of us. And yeah, they never saw us. It was, it was insane. <sighs> Anyways, what ended up happening that summer was my dad tried to commit suicide. We didn't have a phone, so I'm not exactly sure how my mom found out. But she was crying one day after we were praying. And I said, Mom, what's going on? And she said she whispered very quietly because our house was bugged. They could listen in on us at any time. And so they said it was so that because we didn't have a phone that if we needed help, that they could hear us, you know, that was their excuse. And, um, so she whispered very quietly in my ear. She told me about what happened. And she said, we need to, we need to get to a pay phone. We need to to make sure that that your dad can hear our voice, that he knows we're alive, that we want him to, to live. And, um, so that day we, it was a Sunday and we had to, oh, it was, it was really scary. Um, Sundays are the days that everybody stays in the house. Mm-hmm. And we were just hoping that when we left our house, that they didn't see us walking, you know, because we were always just supposed to stay home. and And we had to take the back roads just in case. You know, one of the cult leaders were driving on along the street. So we took this back roads and we walked. There's only one grocery store in the town that we were living in, in St. Anthony. This town was less than 3000 people. And we went to that one grocery store. They had a pay phone there. And my mom had a little pouch of quarters. And she opened up her little uh, address book from eight years prior she's trying to call all of these people that she used to know and a lot of them didn't have the same phone number so you know she's putting quarters in and then she's having to put more quarters in and then the times that she actually talked to somebody they were like "Leanne is that you? Oh my gosh. I haven't heard from you in 8 years. Like where have you been? Did you know what happened to your husband and blah blah." And and they're like frantic and she's frantic and she can't, she's trying to tell him, I need to somehow get a hold of him. How do I get a hold of him? And then, you know, click call drops because ran out of money, ran out of the quarters. And we're standing there in devastation because we had really broken the law of the cults of, of first of all, spending money on a Sunday. It's very, 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 very bad. And then and then leaving on a Sunday to do something like that, to even try to call somebody outside of, out of our, you know, uh, to try to connect with family was such a. Forbidden. Forbidden. Yes. And at that point we were standing there like thinking, what do we do? We made it all this way. And there was a man that drove into the parking lot. We were looking at him like, doesn't he know the store is closed? It's a Sunday. The store is closed on Sunday. Then this town is just so tiny. And. He walks up and he's jingling quarters or money in his pocket and he's walking to the vending machine, which is very close to the, to the payphone. And he's looking at us like, wow, what's wrong? You know, like there's something not right. And as he's like putting quarters in to get his soda, he's like, is everything okay? And my mom's not wanting to look at him because she's committing a crime at the moment and somebody's watching us commit a crime and I finally look up and I say, We're trying to get a hold of my dad, and we've run out of quarters. And he literally reached in his pocket, grabbed all the quarters, and he said, I'm going to come back with more. Wow. You know, and he ran to the gas station, got some more, and just handed it to us. And we finally were able to get a hold of my dad and talk to him. And, um, then the next one call my mom made was to California where we had an uncle and she told him what happened. And she said, I need you to come and get me. I need you to take me back to Portland so that I can see my husband and my kids. You know, this is a desperate situation. And so when we got to Portland, my, uh, my dad was like, why aren't our girls in school? I don't understand. Like they need to be in school. Yeah. And I think just the pressure from, um, you know, the meetings that she was going to and the pressure from my dad, she was like, screw it. I'm tired. You know, I'm tired of fighting this. And I was every day just begging her. I was like, I don't want anything for my birthday. I just want to go back to school. Please let me go back to school. And uh, she finally let me go back to school. I met a girl and actually I had met her years prior when we were little. We used to play Chinese Trump rope together on the playground and we reconnected and, I did the forbidden thing again, which was to get into conversation about God. Cause she started talking about God as we were, we were in home ec class. Like we were making fruit pizza. Okay. So we're Mm -hmm. making fruit pizza and, and somehow she starts talking about God. And I'm like, she calls him heavenly father. And I'm like, who are you talking about? You know, like God. And I was like, dude, you don't call him heavenly father. He will smite you. That is so disrespectful. I don't know who you're talking about. And she's just like, he loves us. Like, he's totally our father. He loves us. Like, he wants the best for us. He's in the details of our life. Like, he wants us to be happy. And I was like, okay, my mom was definitely right about you pagans. (laughs)
2: Like,
1: you must be worshiping a different God than we are. Because the God I know is going to take every opportunity to smite you, to punish you, but as I became closer to her, I just gravitated towards her because she had so much hope and so much light and she had plans for her future. Really? You're going to go to college? Like you're going to, you you think you're going to start a family? Like you, you, wow, really? And, yeah. and I almost wanted to say, well, I don't, I don't think you should plan for that. Cause that's probably not happening, you know? And, and then I was like, well, what if, what if I could go to college? What if I could maybe start a, what if I survive, you know? And just that friendship that I had with her and the hope that she gave me, that was when I really learned my purpose was to thrive. I learned who he really really is. And I realized my purpose on earth is to be happy and to help other people on their journey. Mm. And that's when I started my journey of rewriting my story and escaping that cult. I will tell you that the the escape was not just like a one and done. It was definitely like we t- talked about earlier. It was like a, a messy breakup, you know, like you break up once and then you get pulled back in and then you break up again and then you get pulled back in. But, but ultimately the the biggest turning point for me was when my brother died. Um, he died the, the year that the summer that I graduated from high school. And as I was watching him, his casket being put down into that, into the grave. Mm. I was like, no, I'm no longer going to be manipulated by this group. I'm no longer going to allow them to tell me how to live my life. Mm. I'm going to live my best life and I might die tomorrow, but Mm. I'm going to plan for my best life today. And since then, I'm so grateful. I I graduated high school. I graduated from college. Like they told me I never would do. Mm. I met an incredible man. I've been married to him for 15 years. And it's so sad for him in certain ways because I married into this like amazingly stable family. They're like kind of vanilla, you know, like just like no drama, just easy, super loving, like super stable. And then he marries into my family, which is like,
0: Doomsday cult. I like to
1: call <laughs> him a wonderful chaos, but I think yeah. we have to take out the wonderful part and just leave it as chaos. And he's like my rock, you know? Oh. He's just incredible. And he's freaking hot.
0: It speaks to the healing that you did to attract someone who you can get into a healthy, stable relationship with where you're complimenting
2: one another. That's really, really
0: fantastic.
1: Well, thank like, you. I've never really no, thought of it that way.
2: Yeah. Like... Being in a relationship with someone that doesn't have your experience obviously he might he might observe you saying things and he'll be like where did that come from
0: <laughs> yeah like you used the word smite I haven't heard that word in a very long time he's probably sitting around the dinner table like what is a smite word you've just come up with
2: <laughs>
1: Oh, yeah. He's, he's definitely a wonderful man. And, mm-hmm. and I have three little kids. I've got a two-year-old, a five-year-old, and a nine-year-old. Uh, and I try my best to teach them that you really can live a life that you love, a, li- mm-hmm. a life full of deep relationships.
0: Thank you, Christine. It's it was so incredible welcome. being with you. It was really- Thank a- you so much for this
1: opportunity to, to really deep dive. This has been truly therapeutic for me.
0: it was really beautiful
1: (laughs) all right andy and bambos thank you you. continue to light up the world i'm grateful take care a lot
0: of love thank
2: you bye
1: Bye.
2: this week's theme like for some reason coincidentally we have a theme for this week what's that
0: injustice injustice oh yeah we saw a lot of injustice this week didn't we yeah
2: this reminds me of of your Cyprus friend who lives in the US. You said, "Am I supposed to feel good after?" <laughs> yeah, <your> exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, we had one of those. I had that was one of my best moments. After of, of I meet a man who then watches a show, and the next day he he says to me, "Andy, am I supposed to feel better after I watch one of your shows?" <laughs>
2: I mean, her story could also be a Netflix. Uh, oh,
0: I saw Netflix in my head. I saw when she crawled back into the window. I saw that, the Netflix <laughs> moment. I'm like, oh, no, she's crawled back in. No, no. Or with the coins and the paper. Yeah, point. and the cop the coming. Despair. And not getting any. I mean, like the despair in that moment. Oh, we, I felt I felt a lot of emotions today.
2: Netflix moment. <laughs> It's a wonderful chaos. chaos. We
1: like it that way. Uh-uh.